3: It's Friday, June 26th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andrea Viscontis.
1: And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, society collide. And we endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters.
3: You can find us online at motherjones.com slash minds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com and on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook at slash podcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. It's the end of June. It's our last episode on emerging technology for the month. And this week, we're exploring 3D printing, what it is and what it could mean for society. 3D printing promises to bring prototyping to the hands of almost anyone. So any, almost any design that you have in your head, you can hold in your hands with a 3D printer, or at least that's the promise. So in order to understand whether we've really come to a place in which 3D printing for everyone is a a possibility, and to understand what the impact of this might be, and of course the science behind it, I went to a conference held by O'Reilly called SolidCon. It's a conference on hardware, software, and the internet of things. And there I met two individuals whom I interviewed, Will Walker, from a company called Form Labs. Will is a sculptor, designer, and educator, and Formlabs is a company that came out of MIT and is bringing 3D printing to anyone who's interested in it. They even had a pop-up factory at the conference, which they built in like six weeks, and while I was watching, they were manufacturing this wearable product uh, that I got to wear around the conference. So that's the first part of our interview for today, and then I listened to a keynote talk by the CEO of a company called Divergent Microfactories. His name is Kevin Zinger, and at the end of his speech, he unveiled what just might be the first 3D-printed automobile. So my goal with these interviews was to give you a little bit of information about 3D printing and then talk about one application in more depth. Kevin was formerly the founder of an electric car company based down in L.A. called Coda, but in the four years that the company was around, they were only able to sell about 100 cars. In the process, though, Kevin came across what might be an even bigger problem that cars pose to the environment, the impact of car manufacturing. So hearing Zinger tell it, he argues that the pollution coming out of the tailpipe of a car pales in comparison to the environmental cost of producing the car itself. So over its lifetime, an electric car could actually be worse for our planet than a gas-powered car if manufacturing doesn't change. Well, this kind of blew my mind and, of course, makes us rethink our decisions in terms of buying an environmentally friendly car if there is such a thing. But Kevin argues that 3D printing actually provides a potential solution. And to demonstrate this, he focuses on the chassis, the framework of the car, um, essentially onto which all the other parts are built. So on stage, he was carrying what looked like a slightly oversized gym bag. And inside, he had managed to fit a bunch of tubes and nobs but all that is necessary to build a chassis for the car that he unveiled.
1: Tell me you saw a 3D printed car. Tell me you saw a 3D printed car.
3: I saw a 3D printed car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It was pretty cool. So technically, just the chassis is 3D printed, but according to Zinger, it can be the most expensive and energy-intensive part to produce. The car I saw looked super cool. It was lean and sleek, with two seats, one in front of another, like a tandem double stroller if you have twins (laughs) or two kids that are young, um, and doors that open upwards like the DeLorean, although the vehicle itself was much more curvy, whereas the DeLorean is angular. Um, We'll put up a couple of photos of it on our Tumblr page. The car has a 700 horsepower engine. So this is no like wimpy little car and goes from zero to 60 in about two seconds, but it only weighs about 1400 pounds. So this framework or the skeleton is the key feature or innovation here. And Zinger's idea is that everything else could be customized. And in fact, that that's one of the real strengths. This means that In different parts of the world where people might have different needs or different desires these cars can be manufactured almost to spec and instead of spending a billion dollars building one factory that has to then produce thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of vehicles He actually envisions many, many cheaper micro factories, none costing more than, say, $20 million, popping up and making different versions of the car, kind of customized to the location. And the reason that he could do this is because of this 3D printed chassis.
1: Oh, I like car on demand. That that's a new service that goes a little bit beyond Uber, I think.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I just, I want to stress again that, you know, we are doing this, these series of segments on emerging technology. So we're not, Condo- you know, we're not promoting any one of these products. I-, I don't know anything about whether or not the blade can actually drive. I don't know if it's a good car. I don't know if if uh, Kevin's company is something that you know you should invest in or that you should buy products from. But what I really think is interesting is the vision and the science and technology behind what they're trying to accomplish.
1: Seven hundred horsepower and fourteen hundred pounds makes for interesting math, too.
3: It's pretty cool. So that'll be our two interviews for this week. Uh, But before we get to signs in the news, I actually wanted to let our listeners know that we have a guest in the studio today. Uh, This is Matt Quinn. Hey, (laughs) Uh, Matt, if you hear any clicks, is taking photographs of us uh, for a website that he runs called Ways We Work. And so Inquiring Minds is very proud to be featured on this website in a few months, uh, where he covers and he and his partners cover all the different ways in which people work.
1: Yeah, and I'm excited to be featured on there because you're going to see the completely smooth, linear process that this podcast always comes off in.
3: Exactly. Yep. So, anything catch your eye this week?
1: On Friday, I saw Inside Out. Another fantastic Pixar movie that made me cry more than uh, a few times. I loved it. I saw it with my son. And uh, I'm not going to reveal any spoilers.
3: But we all know. It's like, what if feelings had feelings? Yeah, right.
1: that's pretty much it. And so they're inside the brain, and they spend a lot of time talking about memories. And uh, they basically depict memories like almost every other movie depicts memories. Like there's this sort of hard drive kind of storage, and you have limited capacity, and you eventually throw away memories. And I was reading a news article in Wired this week, is can our brains fill up with memories? Like, is there a limit? And this is an interesting question, and it's also interesting to talk about this with you, since you've studied memory a fair amount. The idea is that, no, there's no sort of theoretical limit for memories because it's really patterns that are creating these memories. But a lot of research shows is that when we go through recall and uh, memory formation that the these patterns can kind of come in conflict and the process of which they res- uh, the those memories can get resolved when they're in conflict in that recall phase really interesting and there's a couple of papers that came out in the past few years have really explored that space. And that we sort of don't forget because our memories get full. It's because of how the process tends to make us uh, forget. So we don't have, we do have an unlimited capacity. And there are actually people with disorders that don't forget anything, which sounds miserable, by the way. Uh, And I'm not even going to try to pronounce the name of that disorder. But it was a really interesting question that the Wired article posed that the way we think about memories, oftentimes as a hard drive storage in our brain, is just completely wrong.
3: I feel like neuroscientists have been saying this for 20 years. I mean, you know, the VCR model of like, you know, you observe something, and then you just put the tape into the VCR and press play. I mean, I guess that's totally obsolete these days. But this idea that you can just replay back what happened, that's just not how the brain works at all. But I I think what I'm a little bit sad that Pixar didn't wasn't more innovative about how they kind of the, the analogy they used.
1: I think they put story ahead of accurate science when it comes to memory storage and optimization.
3: But I don't think the two are at odds. So when I think of it memory, I think of it as more like an Etch-a-Sketch, right? So every time you remember, you actually have to recreate that particular memory. And if you use your Etch-a-Sketch, and you always did the same pattern over and over and over again, it would kind of get etched in. So it would be a little bit maybe easier for you to pull back that one kind of very tight narrative. Um, But it would also kind of leave traces. So every time you do the etch-a-sketch, like maybe it doesn't quite wipe away, you know, completely. Instead, you leave a little bit of a trace behind. So the next time you try to draw on that same memory, there's a little bit of an influence of the way in which you've remembered it in the past. Uh, And so I I actually think that, you know, with with a little bit of thinking and God, the people at Pixar are so smart, like they just, you know, can we just put a bunch of memory scientists into one of their rooms and have us go at it creating, you know, a, a really great analogy, because I think that's w- really still what's missing in terms of our understanding of memory is, is a really great analogy, but it's out there, we know enough about it time for us to figure it out.
1: I think I know what you're getting at. Uh, you want to go to Pixar and have that discussion. Uh, I get that.
3: Please, can I go to Pixar? <laughs> Anybody listening, working at Pixar? Please, can I come?
1: <laughs> but the other thing that I think was great about this Wired piece is it, it really relayed, uh, showcased the papers that developed the history of this conflict. So I, rem- I recommend our uh, listeners check it out because it was really thoughtful and links to an, a number of different papers going back to like, 1975.
3: That's great. And Wired's really good about that.
1: And eating catch your eye this week.
3: Yes. So, one of the things that uh, I came across this week is this notion that exercise can be poisonous. Have you heard this, Kishore?
1: I've lived my life by that practice (laughs) and idea.
3: Yeah, so oftentimes I get into arguments, especially with my brother, uh, who's an orthopedic surgeon, but who's also very athletic and really into working out. And you know, he has sort of this view that there's no such thing as too much exercise. And I kind of keep reading stories here and there that maybe call that into question. And so, of course, you know who's going to be getting this EPUB ahead of print, my brother. It's from the International Journal of Sports Medicine, and uh, it's about ultra marathoners. So- wait,
1: wait, what the heck? An ultra marathon. <laughs>
3: So these are people who run for 24 hours without a break for fun.
1: O- okay, so they're crazy.
3: <laughs> well, no, they're ultramarathoners. So if there are any ultramarathoners among our listeners, please do uh, write to us and let us know why it is that you do it. But I suspect that there's an endorphin rush. There's a mix of, you know, 24 people-
1: hours without a break, though. That's unbelievably intense. They must be covering like 100 miles or something like that.
3: For fun. 75 to 130 miles on foot in 24 hours. So, yeah. (laughs) Um, So, the researchers for this paper sampled the blood of 17 of these ultramarathoners and 12 controls. And uh, they found that during the race, the guts of the runners got leaky. That is that because there wasn't enough blood flowing to the intestines during the run and there was physical trauma from so many jarring miles, gut bacteria essentially were able to leave the gut and get into the blood where some of the, some of them released toxins. So this is
1: like organ failure.
3: It's sepsis. <laughs> Yes. So the runner's bodies uh, responded by launching an immune response. And then of course, there's inflammation. Um, But some runners actually had blood that looked very much like people who go to the hospital because they have blood poisoning or sepsis. (laughs) Um, Now, if you're really well trained you tend to be able to avoid the problem because your body launches a counterattack. So the anti-inflammatory compounds are unleashed with, you know, to tamp down the body's immune overreaction. Um, But if you're not, if, you know, if if you're thinking about running an ultramarathon, like just running for 24 hours without training is not a good idea. But it says, you know, and, and the authors found that even just four hours of activity is extreme enough to kick off this chain.
1: Is this the kind of thing where uh, understanding what's triggering that um, that response, the anti-inflammatory inflammatory response in humans could actually be beneficial to other areas? Or is this really like the, just a study of outliers?
3: I mean, you know, all information is useful. We never know the implications of any, any one study. But I, I think in this case, it's a pretty specific case. I mean, I, I don't know that you can extrapolate, you know, leaky gut Bacteria leaking from your gut as a result of physical trauma and lack of blood flow. I mean, you know, those are pretty specific conditions. This is
1: really motivating me to exercise tonight.
3: <laughs> Just don't do it for more than four hours.
2: Not a problem.
3: <laughs> All right. So, with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Will Walker and Kevin Singer. Will Walker, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hey, how's it going? So, you work for Form Labs, and what does Form Labs do?
2: Formlabs makes a high resolution desktop 3D printer. We, kind of, our claim to fame was that we were the first people to come out with a printer that uses stereolithography on the desktop. Stereolithography is different than other 3D printers that people have maybe heard before because it uses a laser to cure a bed of liquid resin. What you get is a very smooth surface and very highly detailed part. So you get parts that really feel more like uh, finished goods rather than something that looks like a 3D printed part.
3: Cool. So I'm wearing something on my wrist right now that comes from Formlabs. It's a little black band and it looks like a white plastic box. What is this thing?
2: So this is the Alike bracelet, and it's kind of a fun conference icebreaker. So the idea is that if you're wearing one of these bracelets, you fill out a little survey at the beginning of the show. And when you walk up to people, you kind of hold your bracelets together, and then they light up. And the color that they light up tells you if you have sharing interests with the person that you're talking to. So it's a nice way to sort of you know, make an introduction with people, but at the same time, uh, it's demonstrating that we are making a wearable in six weeks and actually producing them here on the show floor, which is something that nobody's ever done before.
3: So if you and I, say, had aligned interests and we put our wrists together, uh, it would light up green. Is that right? Yeah.
2: It'll light up and glow green, and that kind of lets us know, hey, uh, we've got something in common, definitely.
3: And if it lights up red, isn't that a little awkward? (laughs) (laughs)
2: i mean okay so we were also thinking that like it would be great if it like had something like oh well i actually saw the road warrior like seven times and you saw it six times and it was like lighting up based on that i mean so the key i think that you want to think about is not that this is like a polished product that's totally finished but it's a work in progress that people developed you know in a blisteringly fast time frame. I mean, literally we had two people who had to fly to China, work on circuit boards, work on injection molding. At the same time here in the US, we were doing the early 3D printing and the design work. We were designing the factory floor print. We were creating circuit boards. We were debugging software. And all of this came together here at Solid. So we were really able to put together a product in six weeks, which, I mean, who does that?
3: And that's, of course, the promise of 3D printing, that you can get a prototype very quickly, that you can get your idea from inside your head into a, you know, at least a, a product that you can interact with straight away. Um, what do you see as kind of the, is that, is that the real promise of 3D printing, or do you see it going beyond that?
2: I think there's a few things. Um, 3D printing is never going to be as cheap for 100,000 products as injection molding. So when we're talking about a device or a thing that you wanna make for mass market, you're probably gonna have to go that far. Now 3D printing can help you develop that by testing pieces before you spend a lot of money on tooling. But what we're really seeing here is there's this missing link which is one to 10,000 pieces. How do I make one to 10,000 units of something? Say because I won a Kickstarter campaign or I'm making a short run prototype for a, a startup business. And what we really allow you to do is do that at scale for a cheaper price and have it on your desk in hours so you're seeing how things change there's one other thing i would add which is that you can change your design on the fly so literally i was making files that are printing on the form on the on the farm today i was making them last night so you're literally as soon as you can come up with ideas in fact even faster than you can come up with ideas you can make them real
3: so how does it work (laughs)
2: So the first thing that we, it starts with two sort of pathways. We, on the one side of the booth over here, we have actually a whole circuit manufacturing line. We have a machine that's actually uh, taking the little circuits and the resistors and the capacitors and placing them right on the circuit board. Uh, And right as that goes, as the part goes down the line, then it gets heated in an oven that sort of fuses the circuits to the board. And then that board is ready to go in our, in our wearable. Uh, On the other side, we have the 3D printer. So we actually have a wall of 12 3D printers. Each 3D printer is capable of producing seven parts every three hours. Uh, So that means with 12 3D printers, we're getting 84 parts every three to four hours. And so as fast as we can turn them around, that means in an eight-hour working day, we're easily able to make 168 pieces. So... We're just producing on this side. We have a finishing station where we sort of inspect the parts and make sure if there's any bumps on them, we'll sand them down, make them look really nice. And then we have the assembly station where people actually fill out a survey and pick up their wearables.
3: And they just look to me like kind of high-tech queasy narts. We'll we'll post a photograph of them on our Tumblr page. But they're sort of these white and uh, orange boxes, um, sort of what you think, like... Two by two and feet in terms of actually it's a
2: uh, it's twelve inches by twelve inches by about sixteen or seventeen inches tall. So it's a really a compact desktop piece, and it has a this bright orange cover. The reason that you're seeing that is actually because the system uses a laser inside to cure a bed of liquid resin, and so you have to protect the user's eye from that laser. What the cover lets you do is see kind of the action that's going on, see the laser going off without being exposed to any direct laser light.
3: So. From the way I understand it, if I, I, will, I will create some kind of a design using some com- computer software, and then I'll send it to this machine, and how is it that this machine is essentially able to do any kind of part? I mean, how does how does the actual physical structuring work?
2: Yeah, let's well, let's go over and look at it. I'll like like outline it and describe it. Oh, excuse us. So you can see this one working over here. So. What's happening is it's actually building up layer by layer, but those layers are extremely small, 100 microns, about the width of a human hair. And so what's happening is you see this little flicker of green light floating along the bottom, and that light is actually tracing hundreds or thousands of little pathways you can see over here. And wherever it's tracing, it's actually solidifying that liquid plastic.
3: So, yeah, let me just describe that for our listeners. It just really looks like a tiny laser of light that's going um, and and sort of hitting different points of this kind of two-dimensional part of the printer. So almost like a printer normally would go and, you know, print off a page of paper. Here it looks like each page is kind of in the third dimension.
2: And unlike a normal 3D printer or a, a filament 3D printer, which is kind of the, the most common kind, um, where you hear a lot of motors and pulleys, things moving, this one you don't really hear anything happening because it's all light-based. So it's, it's pretty silent when it's sitting on your desk.
3: And so the limitation here is that, of course, the part can't be any larger than the sort of... What do you call that kind of stage of, of where the resin is? It's
2: the build volume
3: the build volume so of course it's limited to the build volume
2: so our build volume is about 125 by 125 by 165 millimeters so that's uh four by four and a half by four and a half by uh 5.9 inches uh and that really gives you you know it's a it's like a i want to say it's actually like human skull size sort of (laughs) which i always wanted to have like a human skull dangling from but we never you know it's a little too cheeky uh it's it's, it's like a half a loaf of bread, um, like two cans of soda, you know, a couple of cans of soda together. For a product designer, it's a really sweet spot because, you know, doing razor blades, cell phones, all of these things can be printed. An iPhone could easily be printed in this volume. Um, it seems to be where all our consumer electronics are going is into that small form factor. And that's about what the size that we print.
3: So let's talk about the actual um stuff that it's made of. What are the materials? Are they harmful? Do, should we worry about the waste that it's creating?
2: Sure. Okay. So uh, 3D printers, uh, this kind of 3D printer uses an acrylate photopolymer. So when it's cured, it performs very similar to acrylic. Uh, it's important to know that when you're handling the liquid resin that you want to wear uh, wear neoprene gloves, like the kind that you'd wear in a, in a hospital or, you know, um, just generally speaking, normal gloves. And in terms of Using the material once it's cured is actually um, it's actually quite hard and solid, and then it's safe for contact and safe to use.
3: And is there heat involved? I mean, it looks like it's all melted. So is that is it? Gonna, does that need to cool down? How does that work?
2: So in this case, the the resin actually it it went. This is kind of an interesting fact. It does heat up when you're curing it, but not by a lot. Um, Generally speaking, it doesn't involve heat. There's no heaters built into the system. It actually works at room temperature and at basically the way that your office would work.
3: So if I then wanted to print my little plastic thing and then make it a kind of consumer electronic or a little robot, then I would go over to the circuit board machine, right? So what's sort of the next step once you've got your little plastic thing? Sure.
2: So first there's the design process. Um, And the design process means, you know, kind of sitting down and and working with Um, CAD software, computer aided design software to make a 3D printed object that we can then take and print. On the other side of the factory you have a circuit manufacturing line and what you really need to work with there is uh, circuit diagramming. You know you've seen people who work with circuit boards and they solder things together. Essentially what this is doing is miniaturizing that. So first you work out your idea sort of on the large scale where you know you can use inexpensive components and join them together and solder them to prove your idea works and then you take that and turn it into a circuit board. Typically, that's done by um, outparty services. In this case, we have a company, Seed Studio, that is actually doing it here on the floor.
3: So it seems like 3D printing has kind of taken off in the last few years. So what was the big scientific or technological leap that made that possible?
2: I think the real change in the industry was that you had a a number of key patents that expired, and that allowed uh, a sort of democratization of this technology. It used to be to get access to this technology, you had to be Lockheed Martin or Boeing or an aerospace company or you know a defense contractor and what we 've really done is take this very expensive locked up technology and bring it to the general public um, and to bring it to anybody who has sort of a dream about a prototype, an artist, you know character designer, uh, and let them really feel their their creations. Um, You know, there's a whole category of people, particularly in Hollywood, here in California, who do digital design and they've been doing it for decades and they never had the chance to feel what they make. They've always been dealing through a glass screen and this allows them to actually reach out and touch their character's face. And that's, to me, you know, that act of creation, making that act of creation uh, available for more people, I think that's that's really the story of what Formlabs is doing.
3: And so here you have all of these people wearing wearables and mine you you mentioned is very plain. Uh, and you asked if I wanted to customize it. So let's do that. How do I customize my wearable? Okay,
2: we're going to walk on over to the final assembly uh, the final assembly table and we're going to pop the top off of your wearable. We're going to see the electronics inside and then we're actually going to pop uh, a customized uh, top on onto it.
3: Sounds great. All right, great. Well, there we go. Just I'm like back that. on my wrist. Yeah. Great. Well, now I have a much more fashionable wearable. Will Walker, thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having us. Kevin Zinger, welcome to Inquiring Minds.
2: Thanks.
0: Happy to answer any questions you have, Ender.
3: So if you're making a decision about what kind of a car to buy, and you decide that you want to go electric, most of us think that that's the environmentally friendly choice. But in this morning's keynote, you suggested that maybe actually that's not the whole story.
0: Well, if you're looking at the real impact of cars on the environment, you have to look at it from a life cycle standpoint, meaning you're producing a product. You're mining materials. You're then processing materials. And those are, in turn, coming together into uh, components that are assembled into a car. And then the car is operated. And then something is done at the very end of the life of the car. And when you look at it from that entire life cycle standpoint, one thing uh, you find out is that the tailpipe emissions are just the tip of the iceberg as to the real impact of a vehicle on the environment and on our health. And the National Academy of Sciences, for example, back in 2010, did a very extensive detailed study using that life cycle analysis. And it showed that Depending on the electric car, electric cars also generate quite a bit of pollution and, in some instances, are dirtier uh, than a regular internal combustion engine car.
3: So, you put up this really kind of amazing slide that, that showed exactly this that if, you know, if we just look at tailpipe emissions, sure, an electric vehicle might have less emissions over the course of the time of it's being driven but its entire process of manufacturing can actually have many times greater an environmental impact and you also talked about how you know you had your son was in northern china and you know personally experienced the fact that the pollution in this one town you mentioned was 40 times what is considered safe so is this really the impetus for you to start this new way of thinking about auto manufacturing or was there something else driving you to it
0: that is the main driver Uh... You know, I uh, was one of the early electric car uh, pioneers and entrepreneurs. And, you know, I believe that because a car didn't have a tailpipe, that it intrinsically was a clean car. The process of actually designing and manufacturing, running a physical plant, uh, both a chassis assembly plant and physically running a battery Manufacturing plant, as well as having designed the battery system that was manufactured in that plant, showed to me that uh, you know I wasn't looking at the full picture. And obviously, I had a son over there who spent a uh, a summer back in 2010 working on our chassis assembly plant in Harbin, which is in northeast China, and the pollution there, you know, in large part from power production and, and manufacturing you know was extremely bad and you know that became very clear to me and i became clear to me that i had to rethink things and so when we looked at cars i looked and said rather than focus on the drivetrain let's focus on the entire life cycle and where we're going to get the most leverage in reducing pollution the fact is in the last 113 years or so we've built two billion cars over a much shorter period of time, less than a third of that time, next 30 to 40 years, we're going to build another four billion. So we're going to go from two billion to six billion cars. If we continue to manufacture heavier and heavier cars, if we continue to supersize, whether it's an internal combustion engine car or whether it's a battery powered car, electric car that weighs you know, more than an SUV, if we continue to do that, we're going to destroy the planet. So we knew we had to look back at manufacturing, see if there were using today's new technologies, whether there was a different way to manufacture and dematerialize manufacturing, radically reduce the material and energy that goes into manufacturing a car.
3: So in a dramatic moment this morning, you had a Essentially, a backpack from Patagonia on the stage, in which you contained the entire chassis of the car uh, that you know, one that I'm looking at right now, which just looks super cool, by the way. Um, so, tell me a little bit about whether it's the chassis that you think is um, the the really limiting factor in terms of the weight of a car, um, and why you chose to have that be the focus of uh, the way you're changing manufacturing.
0: I mean, the chassis of a car is the structure that all of the other components. Uh, go on or attached to and and the car is operated from. I mean, that is the driver to the the entire dynamic of the car industry. So, you know, that is, if you want to have a transformational impact on the car industry, if you want to have something that's a fundamental departure for manufacturing, it has to start with that complex structure that holds all the rest of the car together. And, that complex structure is what causes factories to cost a billion dollars. Whether it's Toyota or Tesla, you have five-story stamping machines that cost tens and in aggregate hundreds of millions of dollars. When you're creating the tooling for a car, uh, you're taking uh, a hardened steel and machining it for literally months. Some of the... the uh, the stamping tools take eight months or more uh, to design it and to make. When you have that, once you do that, everything that you've done is frozen into that capital equipment, and innovation is stopped. Sure, you can upgrade the electronics, or you can do other things, or you can change the front bumper or the rear taillights, but the fundamental structure is locked in. And from a financial standpoint, with all of that capital in, everything is about capacity utilization. How many of these vehicles can I manufacture in large volume because I've spent so much money on equipment? And that is the characteristic financial and innovation dynamic of the automotive industry, which is our, an industry that if we look outside, all of this concrete, parking lots, cars, all of that part of our environment was shaped by car production. It has a tremendous impact uh, on us. So if we're going to do something that's fundamentally going to change those characteristics of this very large uh, industry that impacts our environment, our health, the environment around us, we have to start with what fundamentally characterizes it, and that is that chassis manufacturing.
3: So tell us a little bit about how your chassis is different. I mean, it fits in a backpack, so that's one way it's different. But how is that even possible?
0: It uses no tooling. Instead of tooling, we're using 3D metal printing to print a connector that connects aerospace-grade carbon fiber tubing and paneling. So when you look at 3D uh, printing, uh, 3D printing... uh, allows complexity to be free. So there are a lot of features that make the node, the connector that I'm talking about, that's 3D printed, replicable and scalable and allows uh, you know, instantly that connector to use epoxy to, you know, uh, in a replicable way, join the tubing and other structural parts to the, the connector. That's free. When you increase uh, volume, though, it increases time. So you want the, the time it takes to manufacture. It's actually called the cube problem. You double the size of a, compo- uh, of a piece that you're 3D printing, it cubes the time it takes. So if it took four hours to manufacture something and you double the size, it would take 64. So you want to use that 3D printing for what it's strong at, which is, you know, free complexity, but minimize the size of it so that you can... Uh, you know, obviously minimize material, energy, and the time cycle it takes to manufacture. And then we've used uh, aerospace carbon fiber uh, tubing and paneling, which because of the aerospace industry, we now have uh, planes, Boeing 787, the, the Airbus 380, that extensively use carbon uh, fiber uh, as a structural component. That's brought dramatically, dramatically brought down the price, pricing for this. And so this car actually has a couple hundred dollars of carbon fiber tubing in the chassis. The end result is that you can build a super light, super strong chassis that is uh, replicable and scalable without any of that super expensive capital stamping equipment, and you can build it super light with, you know, much less energy and much less material. So this chassis, the entire chassis, instead of you know, I mean, some uh, uh, unibody construction chassis can be over a 1,000 pounds of metal. This ha- The entire chassis weighs 102 pounds, 61 pounds of aluminum, and 41 pounds of carbon fiber. So that's, that's the difference. Doing away with that stamping tooling, radically reducing material and energy, making... Uh, you know, object blocks that are standardized so someone can join them in a chassis that's anything from a two-seater sports car to a pickup
3: truck. So essentially one of your world-changing ideas is to take the idea that we need to have a factory that's very expensive, that therefore needs to produce many, many, many um, instances of a vehicle uh, and make micro factories so that you have a lot more of these factories around but they only produce a, a smaller amount of product um, and I was talking earlier to Will Walker at Formlabs who was suggesting that 3D printing really isn't about producing stuff in high volume but rather that there's a sweet spot of about he said 10,000 products that you can produce is that sort of the model that you're looking at in terms of these micro factories for cars
0: I think right now you can do uh, you can do volume uh, up to say uh, you know from a single micro factory you know up to the thousands of uh, you know individual uh, vehicles from a micro factory. I mean, one thing that we're seeing is, I mean, the technology itself is at a very early stage in its development. So, uh, if you look at the trends, are those trends? Uh, You know, heading in the direction of being able to do much larger volumes using these technologies? Yes. How long will that take? Uh, You know, we don't yet know. Uh, But is it possible that, you know, for very large volumes you could use 3D printing? If you're using it, you know, strategically using its strengths and combining it with other technology? I mean, in my opinion, absolutely yes.
3: So the car that I'm looking at here is gas-powered. Is that correct?
0: It's a bi-fuel car. Uh, if you look at the National Academy of Sciences 2010 study, by far the cleanest way to power a vehicle is compressed natural gas. Even if we were to max out all of our solar and, and wind and renewables, in 2030, you know their study shows compressed natural gas would still be the cleanest way to do it. Because we don't have this infrastructure everywhere, we uh, constructed a bi-fuel motor, meaning the car has both a CNG compressed natural gas tank, so you can run it off of CNG if you have the infrastructure around it, which you do in a place like San Francisco. But if you're driving a long distance and you don't think that there's going to be CNG stations around, there's also a normal fuel cell gas tank in the car that allows you to run the car off of gasoline.
3: So, so compared to uh, a competitor, how much lighter is this car than, say, the next well, bi car? I'd say
0: if you're talking about a supercar. I mean, th- this has over 700 uh, horsepower, so the power is comparable to a, you know, Porsche 918 supercar, but it has one third the weight of a Porsche 918 supercar.
3: And what's its zero to sixty?
0: A little over two seconds. I mean, that's that's the design performance. We really haven't uh, dialed in and tuned up the car, but that's what it's designed to uh, achieve.
3: So. If you're in such a light car, I think for a lot of people, I hear that they drive SUVs because they feel safer on the road. Is that a completely misplaced view, that a car that's lighter is going to be less safe?
0: I mean, it depends how the car's uh, been designed. I mean, th- this this car itself, uh, the chassis is a track design chassis to survive a uh, very high-speed crash. You know, but I'd look at things, uh, you know, from a big picture standpoint in a very different way, which is, uh, you know, if you know the auto industry, you know, we're now at a stage where all of the crash avoidance sensors that you would need to dramatically lower uh, car crashes and fatalities are there. So people like Bosch and big car companies, uh, Bosch is a big electronics supplier, we know we have ways for cars to communicate with each other, to keep distance, to avoid Car crashes. So we should focus on crash avoidance. The second thing we know, and there was a National Highway Traffic Safety Administration uh, uh, report recently that showed for every thousand pounds of car weight uh, that we would take out of a car, we would reduce fatalities by 30%. So I think we as a society not only need you know, if we're going to survive and prosper to radically dematerialize, radically reduce material and energy input so we don't destroy ourselves as we go from two to six billion cars. But we also need to look and say, we can't create an automotive, an automobile ecosystem where everybody's driving a tank because they think in a demolition derby type accident, they have to survive, you know, uh, irrespective of what happens to anyone else. We have the technology that allows us to have super light, super safe cars and we have to move in that direction. You know, if we lack the willpower to do that because we're scared to, you know, be in anything except a big tank, you know, then, you know, we'll have had a failure of will to do the things which as a society will allow us to be sustainable.
3: So I'm sure a lot of our listeners now are pretty jazzed up about this car. So um, when can they buy it and how much will it cost?
0: Well, the first phase of this is really to build a limited number of these in order to uh, perfect and standardize the technology. So 18 months or so out from here, the plan is I'm not trying to be an automotive automobile company that provides cars to everyone. I'm trying to create a standardized set of tools and manufacturing platform and the training and support so that people can license that, small teams all around the world and given whatever their local conditions are, design and build cars that you know have radically reduced, you know, material, energy, and capital inputs, cars that are suited to the local environment, the local economy, the local labor force, uh, and you know that's what we're looking uh, to do. I mean, we're going to over the you know next fifty years or so have forty megacities in the world with tens of millions of people. Each of those cities has its own characteristics, its own style, its own workforce. Why should some mega factory somewhere that's stamping out the same cars, you know, have their cars dominate in one of those megacities? That megacity should find out what it's. You know, Rio style car is what a London style car is, what a Berlin style car is, what a Beijing style car is, and employ people and style and creativity and understand also what is the individual fitness requirements for a car in that environment, and then manufacture for it.
3: And that's where three D printing comes in, where it makes this available for you know anyone to put on their own individual stamp. Is that right? Well,
0: you need to. I mean. To take uh, building objects that are 3D printed and have a manufacturing platform to construct them uh, together. But 3D printing is a, you know, key and necessary uh, technology component of that kind of manufacturing platform.
3: Well, thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds, Kevin Singer.
0: Thank you.
1: Indra, you're at a, a conference with probably Hundreds of 3D printing companies all touting uh, this incredible future of rapid prototyping. But I've been hearing about 3D printing a lot for a number of years now. Does it live up to the hype?
3: Well, you know... At the conference, you 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 know these people really feel that the world is going to be changed, um, and you know the way we bring products to market, the way we design, and you know there are a lot of really touching stories of people who, the, for example, there's one there's this one thing in San Francisco called the Tech Shop. I guess it's probably down down in South Bay. It's in
1: multiple places around okay. the country now, yeah.
3: so it's really cool. And and the guy who runs the Tech Shop or the CEO gave this in really interesting keynote talk about how people can just walk into the Tech Shop and learn how to manufacture something with no experience.
1: And you're talking about Mark Hatch, right? Mark Uh, Hatch. Yeah. yeah, So Mark has a great story about um, helping a homeless person come in, use TechShop to build products. It's totally uplifting. And what did you tell me last week? Anecdotes aren't data. Isn't the plural of data? So
3: plural of anecdotes is not data. Let's get it right. I know I did it. (laughs) I
1: made it joke. Um, Oh, sorry. But the point of it is, that we, I could see the utility for manufacturing companies, no, no question. But then there's been this push for consumer use, too. And when I talk to people that I know and, you know, just generally talk around what people have printed, they talk about, well, I made like a little action figure of myself uh, or I made, you know, a soap dish for my house. It's never anything that rises above uh, something that I would consider fad. It's not rising to the point of utility.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's not like I don't I don't think every household is going to have a 3d printer anytime soon. And, you know, when Will Walker kind of walked me through pardon the pun, you know, the way their 3d printers work, you know, I, I did notice that the first thing he said is you need to design what it is that you want, and you need to use AutoCAD. And like, that's not for everyone, right? I mean, that requires training, it requires, you know, sitting down and learning how to use the software, having the, you know, ideas that it's, it, it's not that trivial to do. And so you have to have the motivation and the sort of desire to put in the time to learn the software and to do that. And then ultimately, the, you know, you're still limited by the materials, right? So it's going to print you something that's plastic. So you know, that particular printer. Now, I know there are different types of 3D printers that use different materials, but you're not going to have one printer that's going to have access to thousands of different materials, I don't think, anytime soon.
1: Well, let's talk about 3D printing for science then, uh, for a different type of user. Uh, did you see many scientists there, or did you hear about a lot of scientific applications? Because at my university, I hear it more and more. Like there's this growing kind of slow drumbeat of how 3D printing is going to change science. And so
3: yeah. On. So there were exhibitors and there were people who talked about using. Uh, 3d printing for sort of biological forms so this one uh company that i saw was 3d printing um sort of rhinoceros horns right to sort of eliminate the need to kill a rhinoceros oh for eliminating its horn. the
1: black market huh?
3: yeah so so there that's one kind of interesting biological sort of application but that's helping you know solve a problem of these these poachers who are, you know, endangering particular species.
1: The thing that's really caught my eye is bioprinting. So the idea of not printing, you know, plastic materials, but printing cellular materials Mm -hmm. and doing it on a microscopic level. I've seen labs like, you know, hack, you know, old uh, inkjet printers to try to illustrate this purpose. What's exciting to me about this is the way you can, you know, sort of layer that material and then grow it in culture, it gives you like such specificity in sort of how you design different sort of cellular conditions. I'm really excited about the potential of that and uh, and the automation that potentially brings. And, and that's what really is thrilling for me is the automation and if 3D printing in, in a biological use follows the same open source model that we've seen in a lot of sort of consumer uses for it, then you could imagine somebody uploading a bioprinting of a sort of a cellular design schematic to Thingiverse, another lab downloading it and using it right away. That sort of rapid transaction we haven't seen in science in this kind of way. Now, I've seen nothing indicating that we've gone anywhere with it. Um, I talked to a group in at Lawrence Livermore labs that are trying to use this kind of technology to 3D print certain cells for sort of like a corneal implant sort of reproduction, which was really interesting. But they're nowhere. Like we're in a very basic research kind of phase with it, uh, where everyone's saying words like 10 years, which is code for like forever in science. Uh, but I was really thrilled about, uh, about what that potentially means for automation.
3: So, I mean, do we have to worry about the megalomaniac who's going to start 3D printing embryos and clone himself or herself? And I mean, is that like, come on, you know the
1: technology's <laughs> not there. Like, I
3: know it's not there, but is there is there something about 3D printing that in in biology that is better than just, you know, manufacturing cells in other ways?
1: I don't know the answer to that. I think that's a really good question. Uh, but I don't think it's mature enough to even ask that question. Like, we're not at the point where we can compare the two different, you know, the tra- you know, lack of a better term, traditional way we, we culture cells and look at bioprinting and be like, hey, this is way better. Because we haven't reached the efficiency level and critical mass to make that comparison. So I think the investment in it, it is fine for now. And I don't see like millions upon millions of dollars being poured into this. Uh, segment of the industry, but there are a lot of startups, especially here in the Bay Area, that are doing some crazy things that I didn't think were possible. There's a, a startup that I recently heard about that's 3D printing genetic fragments of DNA, which uh, which is a level of specificity inside cellular structures that I just didn't think was possible with 3D printing because we're talking about down to a chemical level now. Uh, so I say I say go for it because uh, the potential. Uh, victory for science is so high.
3: Yeah, I just, I don't know how... Yeah, how democratized that part of it is going to be, you know, is it just going to be very still, it's going to be a specialist tool? Well, scientists are
1: specialists. And that's why I also see a lot of 3D printers around is because all of these labs that I tend to walk through, especially at my university, they have specialized equipment and specialized tools. The idea of having a 3D printer there to help you rapidly prototype and potentially use these components um, within other larger systems actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, To just sort of speed along research rather than going out and getting that specific part created, which is going to take months and months and months.
3: And hopefully that will lead to more of a socialism within science as opposed to capitalism, which, you know, is not a great model.
1: Oh, wow. We're going to get some (laughs) mail about socialism in science.
3: Probably. But that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow, on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your own 3D printed prototype, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org and we'd like to thank Discount Filters for sponsoring today's show stop worrying about the air quality in your home DiscountFilters.com will send you an email reminder when it's time to change and also when it's time to replenish your refrigerator, furnace and AC unit filters they have filters to match any fridge furnace or AC unit and if you aren't sure what filter to get you can 3D print it just kidding they also offer helpful filter finders as well as experts who are available if you need them ensuring that you get the right fit and with free shipping and returns you can't go wrong visit Discount Filters dot com slash minds and receive 10% off your order again that's discountfilterscom slash minds to get 10% off your order
1: inquiring minds is produced by science socialism advocate Adam Isaac, in cooperation with the Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer, Rian
3: And we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indrevis.
1: And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week.
2: At Amica Insurance,